Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Looking this morning again at Matthew chapter 6, we'll read verses 9 through 15 uh, here this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before Heavenly Father once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how truly we love you and how we want to know how to pray better. Lord, we, we find in ourselves often a, a kind of weakness when we pray that we are unable to express ourselves clearly, that so often our minds wander. And Lord, even the disciples not knowing how to pray and needing instruction, Lord, so it is true of us. How thankful we are that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has given us this great instruction and even this great example in the, in the Lord's Prayer. How, how we do pray, O oh Lord, that we ourselves would be encouraged by this instruction, that we would be enabled to, to pray in a way that is godly, that's according to your will, and that even, Lord, that our hearts would be transformed, that the things which the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray for, that these would be the things that are first and foremost on our hearts we, for Lord, we do ask all of this to the praise of your glorious name. Amen. We are coming this morning to a very well-known portion of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer, something that you've probably memorized since you were a, a kid. Perhaps even if, you, even if you were not a part of the church, you, you are certainly familiar uh, with the Lord's Prayer. It is something that uh, is very, very common. And it is something that we can often take for granted. It's something that we, we know very well. We can just run through the words and we can miss sometimes, I think, the importance of the Lord's Prayer. One thing that Calvin said, just to emphasize the importance of the Lord's Prayer, he wrote, the, he wrote this in the, in the Institutes. He said, accordingly, this prayer, speaking of the Lord's Prayer, is, is complete in all its parts, so complete that whatever is extraneous and foreign to it, whatever cannot be referred to it, is impious and unworthy of the approbation of God. So, so the idea, what, what Calvin is saying is, is in these very brief petitions, you know, there's only six, and they are, some of them, just a few words, that this prayer is still so complete that if, it, when you pray, if you cannot in some way relate your petitions to the Lord's Prayer, then in fact, you are praying for something that is not in accordance with the, with, with the actual will of God, that this prayer is complete in and of itself. And this is why, then, this, is, this has been uh, the great model of prayer for God's people. I mean, it's something that we need to say. 
that it's a good thing for us to say and to use, but also even as a kind of instruction for when we are praying using our own words, that we would still model our prayers after the Lord's Prayer itself. This has been uh, the focus of the Reformed Church for a, for a long, long time. The last eight questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism deal with an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. We have the same thing uh, in the larger catechism as well. The end is, is, de is devoted uh, to this. It's very common in Reformed churches to emphasize the Lord's Prayer, even apart from the, the Presbyterian tradition. Uh, very often when there are catechisms that are made, there will be usually some kind of exposition of the Lord's Prayer. And this is because it's recognized by all that this is a crucial and foundational teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. And as I mentioned, if you caught it when I was praying uh, before uh, the sermon, not only is this to teach us the words that we are to say or the kind of things that we are to pray for, but because prayer itself is to be an overflow of our heart, this also teaches us the first things that are to, to be on our hearts when we go through the Christian life. That is to say, it is also a guide for us to know how as Christians we should prize certain things in the Christian life. And you'll notice as we think about the structure of the Lord's Prayer, you, you may be very familiar with this, as I mentioned, there are six petitions. You'll notice that they're divided into two sets of three. And the first three, which is all that we'll deal with here this morning, we're gonna deal with the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer this morning. The first three all have to do with God's glory and God himself. None of them, none of the first three have to do with any of our own personal needs. Very often we can come to God and bring our own needs or the needs of others, the physical needs, uh, this or that thing to, to God. And we do need to bring all those things to God as we'll see Jesus does not neglect that. Any need that you have must be brought to God in prayer. But Jesus shows us that the first thing in half of the Lord's prayer is devoted to seeking God's name, his kingdom, and his will. His name, his kingdom, and his will. When we come to God in prayer and the thing that should be first on our hearts is God's glory, God's glory first. And that should be the thing that drives us to pray, a, a concern for the glory of God. And so this is what we'll look at here this morning. I mentioned we're going to look through the, the first three petitions uh, of the Lord's Prayer. We're also gonna, going to consider the, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father uh, in heaven. So we'll consider uh, those just in turn. So let's consider now the beginning, the way that the Lord Jesus Christ opens up the Lord's Prayer is with an address to God. We have to recognize who it is to whom we are praying. We are praying to God, our Father, and our Father is, in fact, uh, in heaven. You'll notice here that there are two things that are being emphasized in, in this preface. And even again, this shows the, the completeness of it, that God is both our Father. He is one that we can draw near to because of our relationship to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is also in heaven. He is transcendently great and glorious. And as we approach God in prayer, we have to recognize to whom it is that we approach. We, 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 we don't approach God like we do just some other friend that we have, that we are going to speak and have a, a casual conversation with a neighbor. There is a kind of intimacy that we have, but we recognize as well that this God to whom we come is the sovereign Lord of all the earth. He is the one who is high above everything that he himself has, has created. He is the one who sustains and upholds all things, and he is the sovereign ruler over everything that happens, whether it be something that is incredibly small and in our eyes trivial, or whether it be even the great movements of, of the stars and the galaxies. All things are under the sovereign control of God, 
and he reigns over all as the one who is in heaven. And so the first thing that we are to learn from the Lord's Prayer is, is simply this, that when we come to God in prayer, that we have to recognize to whom it is that we come. It can be very, it's very often a temptation that, you know, prayer just becomes a normal thing. We do it every day. And so we don't think about the realities of what's actually happening, that you come before the sovereign Lord of all the universe. You come before the sovereign Lord of all the universe. How often do you think about that as you approach God in prayer? And even this is a good reason why you would begin your prayers with a, a section of, of praising and worshiping God for who he is. You have to recognize who it is to whom you are coming. You are coming to the Lord of all the universe. And yet, what's amazing is this Lord of all the universe, who is the Lord who is in heaven, is also your father. And so though he is this transcendently great God, the one before whom even the angels have to veil their faces and they cry out, holy, 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 day and night, they can't even look at this God. And yet you have access to this God as a father. You, 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 have, you have access to this God. You can approach him as a child approaches even his father. And this is really is, is what demonstrates the greatness of prayer itself, that there is this juxtaposition the sovereign Lord of all the earth, this transcendently great God is yet imminently present near you. He is the one who's imminently present near you. When you approach this God, you can actually approach with confidence. Now, how could it be? How could it be that you can approach this God with confidence when, as I said, even the highest of all the angels can't uh, approach except for veiling their faces? Uh, they, 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 in that sense, in that sense, don't approach uh, in the same way that even you can. How could it be that you, who are lower than the angels, are yet able to approach with such confidence that you can even call God your father? Remember what, what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when he's uh, speaking of the great privilege of prayer with the people of God. He says, what nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? He's saying, God, we have God's ear. He hears our prayers, and there's no one else like this. How is it that we can have such near access to a God who is so mighty? And the answer is even given in the way that we address him. We call God Father. We've been adopted into the family of God. This, this privilege is not something that, that all people share. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, there's a distinction. There's a distinction between the Israelites, the people who are the people of God. They can approach God as their father. As it says, we looked at even last week in the evening services in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14, that it, it, where Moses declares that you are the sons of God. Uh, they can approach God as their father, but none of the other nations can. They do not have God's ear the way the Israelites did or the people of God uh, in, in uh, the church today have. We have God's ear in a way that nobody else does. And it is because of this unique aspect of adoption. Not that God is the father of all, but that God is particularly the father of those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of God, so you who are in him are also counted by adoption as being children of the father. That you are in fact sons of God as well. And every time that you pray, you need to recognize that this is a blood-bought privilege that could only be true if the Son of God himself were, were able to give you his own title as Son, that you would bear the name of the Son of God. And, and then as you have that established relationship with God, from that point of privilege, won for you by Christ, you were able to approach. And if that is the way then that you approach, then you can in fact approach even confidently, though you approach the sovereign Lord of all the universe. You can approach him confidently because you approach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, when you come, you are to remember these two things, that God is your father, that through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, 
He is also the sovereign Lord of the universe. This is what it means when we pray our Father in heaven. And this is something that ought always to be in your minds as you pray. Always to be in your minds. You come to the transcendently great God that you can approach even with confidence, not because of anything in yourself, but only because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and in whom you also are counted uh, as a son. And so this is the way the Lord Jesus Christ opens up with these very simple words, our Father in heaven. We approach God knowing that he is our Father, that he is able to help us as the Lord of all the earth, and he's willing to help us because he is, in fact, our Father. Now, notice then as well, notice as we move into the petitions that come, very familiar words to us. Hallowed be your name, the first petition, your kingdom come, the second petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the third petition. Those, those, very, those very simple petitions, just as the preface is simple and yet has uh, very deep theology in terms of, of the meaning, the thing that's being communicated, so it is here. And as I mentioned, all three of these petitions have only to do with God. We care about God's name, his kingdom, and his will. The first things we pray for not to say that we don't pray for other things. We, we, we bring all of our requests, all of our needs to God. But the thing that should be on your heart more than anything else is God's name, his kingdom, and his will. His name, his kingdom, and his will. And even in some ways, these can be related to, to the, 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 the three persons of the Trinity. You think of the, the name of the Father, the kingdom of the Son, and the will of the Father, the obedience to which is wrought by the Spirit. Spirit wrought uh, obedience to the will uh, of God. Now, the first thing to note is we come to the first petition, hallowed be your name. The first thing to note is simply that it is a petition. This is something that's often missed today. I, th I, th I think there was probably a time when this was not missed as often. I think it's because we've, we've preserved a bit of archaic language that we don't really use the word hallowed uh, as, as much anymore. And so I think the, sometimes the, the grammar of what we're saying in English is, is lost. Um, I've heard many people try to explain this first petition as though it were a declaration that God is holy. Uh, it's not actually a declaration that God is holy. We're not declaring that God is holy. We are making a petition that God would make his name holy. That's the idea of, of hallowed. The idea of the same category of words as sanctify or to make holy. So what we're, what we're actually saying is we're not declaring that God is holy, though he is. It, in this petition, we are actually making a petition that God would, in fact, make his name holy. Now, you can even tell this is the case with the English. The English does preserve this. Uh, because it says, hallowed be. Yeah, that, that be there lets us know that there's, this is a correct translation. The, the Greek is very, very clear um, that it is, in fact, a petition. It's um, clearly in, in the imperative, which is the, 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 the kind of verb that's being used uh, for petitions um, all over the scriptures and just in general. That's the, the grammatical necessity. And so this is clearly a petition, and the thing that we are praying for is that God would make his name holy. Now, this leads to a question, which is, how is it that God's name can be made holy? As I mentioned, it would be right for us to declare that God's name is holy. And those, some people try to explain this first petition as being a declaration. How is it, though, that God could make his name holy when God's name, in fact, already is holy? Uh, there is a sense in which God's holiness cannot grow or shrink because it's already perfect. And so the idea of making God's name holy would seem to imply that we're asking for some kind of growth with regard to the, the holiness of God, that there is something which uh, is not manifest that needs to be manifest further, or there is something uh, in God that needs to be uh, increased. Now, again, we want to be very clear. God does not increase in holiness because he's infinitely holy. He's perfectly holy, and therefore he will never shrink or, or grow in holiness. 
When we pray, therefore, that God would make his name holy, that God's name would be sanctified, what we are praying for is not that God's name would change as an objective thing in terms of its holiness, but rather that God's name would be recognized as holy in all the earth, that the way in which it's received by men would be received as holy, that, that, the, that the glory of God, which cannot grow or shrink, would be recognized by people all over the world that the one who deserves to be praised as the infinitely holy God would in fact be recognized as such, that his glory would be made known among the nations. This is the very first thing that we pray for, and this is what it means that we would pray that God would sanctify his own name. God is perfectly holy, but very often in this world, you can even say maybe in some sense even predominantly, God's name is not treated as holy, but it's rather treated as common. It's not treated uh, as holy, but even there are people who pretend he doesn't even exist, uh, even though they know in their hearts that he does. This would be a, a trampling on the name of God. And the point of, of this first petition is to say this, when you pray, the thing that ought to pierce your heart before anything else, the thing that ought to burden you, your soul such that you are, are drawn into prayer, is that you look around and you see so many people who treat the name of God with disrespect. And there ought to be nothing that grieves your heart more than that. And when you pray, this is to be the first thing that's on your heart and the first thing you bring to God. Lord, Lord, there I look around and I see all of these people disrespecting your name. Would it be, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit and make the preaching of the word effective so that, such that all will see that you are, in fact, a great and glorious God? Remember, there is a connection between what we pray for and what is to be on our hearts. There's a, there's a connection between those things. If we do not pray according to what's on our hearts, it's hypocrisy. We want to pray for the things that are on our hearts. And if the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, this is the first thing you are to pray for, then this also means this is to be the first thing that is on your heart. As someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ because you've been redeemed by him, how much does it burden you that so many people disrespect Christ? That's the question, brothers and sisters. And does that drive you to prayer? It Does this concern, categorize your prayers. How often, how often are you driven to prayer? When, if you compare this to, say, uh, you yourself being sick, you know, your kids getting sick, something like that, someone in your family, or some other kind of need that people have, you've lost your job, those kind of things happen, we immediately go to the Lord in prayer. How often are you driven to prayer out of a concern only for the name of God? Only for the name of God. We always need to pray for all those other things. We can only bring our request to God to no one else. But we also need to be sure that we are always coming to God out of a burden for his name. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed in this earth. May it be your name that's hallowed in this earth. May it be that as the prophet Isaiah says, that the earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. This is the way in which we pray. This is the first petition. Now, the second petition is similar. It also has, again, nothing to do with us. It has to do with God. It has to do with his kingdom. We pray your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We pray first about the name of God. We pray second about the kingdom of God. Now, just like with regard to holiness, there's in some sense, uh, in some ways, two senses in which we can talk about the kingdom of God. There is in some sense in which God's kingdom does not grow or shrink. God is absolutely sovereign. And in the scriptures, he has called the king in that way. 
that in his in in uh, the Lord's hands is the heart of the king. It's like a stream of water that he turns wherever he he wishes. He is absolutely sovereign over the greatest things of the earth, the greatest people in the earth. He is absolutely sovereign over you know even uh, molecular processes that are, we can't even see, and he's sovereign over all the movements of all the galaxies. In this sense, God's kingdom does not grow or shrink. It is absolute. However, there is another sense in which the the, the kingdom of, of God can grow, and that is with respect to the, the sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ, as the God-man, as, as the Son of God who became incarnate, the sense in which he is the king as the Messiah. In this sense, the kingdom does grow, and this is predominantly related uh, to the church. The first sense can't grow or shrink. That's not really what we're praying for with, with, with regard to the second commandment. We do, however, pray that all over the world, that people would recognize the, the, the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would repent of their sins and submit themselves to his kingship. That is something that can grow and shrink. And it's something that we do pray that it would come. Now, even as we think about, um, even as we think about this sense, there's, almost, there's really two ways in which we pray for this. So there is a sense in which, as I mentioned, this is related to the, the growth and progress of the church. It's a fulfillment, really, of the Davidic covenant. Uh, and this is how we know that this is the kind of way in which the kingdom can come. Uh, God is sovereignly the king over all at all times, and yet God promised that there would be a son of David who would be given an everlasting kingdom. If he's given an everlasting kingdom, it wasn't available before. It wasn't there before. It's something that was in the future. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ takes possession of. This is why it says after his, his resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he ra he's raised from the dead, and then he's exalted as the king of all the nations, and then all the nations are going to come because he has all the authority. That's the sense in which we, we say that the kingdom of God comes. Now, as I said, there's, there's really two ways in which we pray for this. We pray for it in terms of the church growing and expanding the progress of the gospel, and then we also pray that, this would, that the kingdom would come in the sense of the Lord Jesus Christ returning from heaven. And this is another sense in which, we, in which the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes as the Lord pours out his spirit and the church grows and all the nations become submissive to Christ. The kingdom will also one day come in a way that's the, the consummation of the kingdom where the Lord Jesus Christ will, will return from heaven with all of his angels and he will rule over all. And even as the scriptures say, at that point, he will defeat the very last enemy, which is death itself. The idea of defeating an enemy is language of kingship. So the consummation of the kingdom, when death itself is defeated, when all the, the enemies of God's people uh, are, are put away, the judgment comes, and his people go into an everlasting peace where there, where there is no more enemies. This is uh, what we pray for when we pray that the kingdom would come. So both of these things, we pray for the advancement of God's kingdom, and we pray for the consummation of all things with the return of Christ. Now, again, the question is, brothers and sisters, we need to pray for all kinds of things. We pray for our own needs. How often do you go to God in prayer out of a concern for these issues? That it would be the desire of your heart to see the Lord Jesus Christ return in all of his glory. And so you say, come Lord Jesus, as it says in Revelation. That it is the, the longing of your heart to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Come Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. I, I long to see the full consummation of it. Or that you would look around and you would see that the church is struggling and for no other reason, you say, Lord, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ has won a great victory over sin and death. And yet there are so many people who are enslaved to death itself and enslaved to Satan. How often does that burden your soul? Or you see those who are uh, teaching false things within the church and you say, Lord, Lord, 
let it be that there would be true shepherds who would be raised up, that, that your kingdom would advance, and that all the enemies of the church would be, would be overthrown and removed. Or when the church is persecuted, or when, when the church is weak, when it's just not even being faithful. How often are you driven to prayer for the sake of the kingdom of God? This, this, brothers and sisters, is the, is the thing that we are to pray for second, is, is to be on our heart. We pray first for the name of God. We pray second for the kingdom of God. This ought to be the thing that, like, like a bride that awaits her bridegroom, so too the church is to await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as, a, as a bride rejoices in uh, the, 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 the full glory of her bridegroom, who is the king of all, being manifest to all, so too the church ought to rejoice when the gospel goes forward. This is to be the thing that is on your heart, and this is to be the thing that you pray for. We pray, hallowed be your name. We pray, your kingdom come. Now, thirdly, we pray also, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice again the third time. This is something related to God. It's something related to God. We pray for his name. We pray for his kingdom. And then thirdly, we pray for his will to be done. And again, I, I mentioned this is also more related to the spirit. We, we think of the, the glory of the Father's name, we think of the kingdom of the Son, and we think of the will of God being done by the Spirit, who is the one who changes the hearts of men and who, in fact, produces obedience even within us that we would be able to submit ourselves uh, to, to God the Father. Now, like the other two, there's also two senses in which, in which we can talk about the will of God. There is one sense in which God's will is absolute, and in which, in some ways, it's always absolute, but in the way, in the way we perceive it. Um, with regard to, the, to God's decree, God's will will always be done. Whatever God wants always happens. Now, when we are praying that we want God's will to be done, we're not so much praying in that way. We know that that's going to be true. God's, everything that's ever happened or ever will happen is decreed from all eternity, and we know that that's going to happen. What we're really praying for is a different sense of the will of God, which is that God has made known to us the things which he wants us to do by, by revealing to us in, that, in this sense his will. And this is particularly in the commandments of God. God makes known to us the things which he wants us to do by giving us laws that we are to obey, commandments. And so, for instance, if we were to, to say, you know, is it God's will that the Lord Jesus Christ be murdered? In some sense, we say yes. The Lord uh, God has decreed it from all eternity. He willed it to happen. And in some sense, we also say, no, God has said that he's not pleased. It is not his will that, that, other, that people put other men to death. And so in that sense, it's against the will of God. It's against the will that God's revealed to us in terms of the thing that's supposed to govern our actions. That second sense is what we're talking about here when we pray that the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that there would be obedience and submission to the will of God. That everything that God wants to have happen, as so far as he has revealed it to us, that this, in fact, would happen because the hearts of people would be changed. This is why it's modified by on earth as it is in heaven. The idea is that in heaven, there is perfect obedience to the Father. There's perfect obedience to God because the angels do, in fact, always obey. On earth, there is far less than perfect obedience. And so what we pray for is that there would be a greater obedience on earth like there is an obedience in heaven that people would understand what the will of God is and that they would in fact do that will by the power of the Spirit. This is what we pray for when we pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as I mentioned, as with the other petitions, this is to be a reflection of our heart. It's really put beautifully in Psalm 119, verse 136. 
where the psalmist, and, and really all through Psalm 119, you can find a number of statements that would be, uh, would show this heart. The, the psalmist in Psalm 119, um, if you want to read something that uh, would be a perfect complement to, to this sermon, the idea of the, the doing of God's will, the psalmist clearly longs to do the will of God and for others to do the will of God. But notice, in, in, in particularly in verse 136, the psalmist says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. For the psalmist, it greatly grieved his heart when he looked around and saw such pitiful obedience to God. It it grieved his heart, and it ought to grieve your heart. It ought to grieve your heart when you see it in others and when you see it in yourself. And this ought to drive you to pray because of the glorious righteousness of the law of God, that you be driven to pray, O Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you can look around and see even today, as you can in any age, the devastating effects of lack of obedience to the will of God. You know, today there, there are those who will you know, nullify the, 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 the will of God. When the churches oppose, often the, the, the ethical teachings of the church are undermined uh, by the world. They'll even say that the church's teachings are perverse. Think about how far this is from obedience. It's not only just that the, the world, in a sense, fails to keep the law of God. The world so perverts the teaching of Scripture that it actually says that the, that, the, that the law of God, that God himself is perverse, that those who are bound in their sin try to critique God himself in his radiant purity and say that the law of God is, in fact, our big problem, and that if we keep it, then we are going to be, in some sense, less uh, better off. We, we will it would be worse off because of our obedience to the law of God, because the law of God is, in fact, not righteous. And this is the reason why you look around, you see devastation, misery, sorrow, and death. This is exactly what happens when the, when the will of God is not obeyed. And think, think of what, the, what God himself deserves. He is, as the high king of all, the sovereign Lord of all, how could it be that creatures who are nothing but dust and ashes, nothing but dust, that they would be willing to say to their maker that they will not submit to the law of God. This is how devastating it is that that creatures would act that way towards God. And and the reason why it ought to prick our souls and our hearts, Lord, may it be that your will would be done. Change the hearts of men so that they would not be so obstinately wicked to say that the things which are right are in fact wrong and the things that are wrong are in fact right. May it be, O, o Lord, that you would send out your spirit. You know, this, is, this is even uh, what was won by the Lord Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. He, he went up into heaven and he received the spirit from his father. May it be that the, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who has won the spirit, that he would pour out the spirit in great abundance so that the people of this world would be changed and that they would submit themselves to God. For God deserves obedience. God deserves obedience, and it ought to be something that you care about, that God receives that obedience which he deserves. That is what we pray for in the third petition, that we would diligently seek uh, others to obey and ourselves to obey the law of God, and that we would pray for that. Now, as I mentioned then, it's to be on our hearts. It's to be something we pray for. This also implies that obedience must be something that you seek personally within your life. It would, it would be a hypocrisy for you to say, I care about obedience, and then to pray for obedience, and then never to actually pursue it in your life. 
the fact that Christ is saying that we ought to pray that, that God's will ought to be done on earth as it is in heaven proves as well that obedience ought to be the thing which you strive for in this life, that you would do it in dependence on God, but you would do it nonetheless, that you would strive for it with everything that is in you. Anything less than that would be hypocrisy with regard to this petition. It's to be on your heart. It's to be something that you diligently pursue. These are the first three petitions that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. As you come to God in prayer, the very first thing you are to be concerned about, and again, we'll look, we'll look at the ways in which uh, the last three petitions are very complete, as Calvin says, it's very true. Uh, everything that would be right for you to pray for your own needs or the needs of others are comprehended in the last three petitions. So we're not saying that we don't pray for those. But we are saying the first concern, the thing, the thing that pierces your heart more than anything else ought to be God's name, his kingdom, and his will. So think about this, brothers and sisters, as you, as you think about your own prayer life. How often is this true of you? How often is this true of you? Do you, are you concerned with these things before anything else? And is it reflected in the way in which you pray? Think about the way in which this is even, even fulfilled with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect model for us as the one who came down from heaven and always, you think of the gospel of John where it said over and over, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my father who's in heaven. Submission to God's will. He, he, he came to win. He was the one that was promised his kingdom and he, he won that kingdom with his own blood and defeated uh, Satan himself by his resurrection from the dead. He, he, is the, he is the one who always sought not to glorify himself, but to glorify the father who's in heaven. And even we see this even with his prayers. You think about the, the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying, where he's having to submit his will to the Father. And for him, this you, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven meant the cross for him. It meant bearing the full weight of the wrath of God. And when he's crying out to God, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. This is to be the way in which every Christian uh, always operates in their prayers, and in their life. And may it be that we would be obedient just as the Lord Jesus Christ was obedient, that he, he took his obedience to the point of death, and even further, death on a cross. He's called us, brothers and sisters, to seek the glory of God, to do whatever we can to hasten the coming of the kingdom, and to be obedient as we take up our crosses and follow even the Lord Jesus Christ to death. May it be that this would, would be reflected in our hearts and that even further be manifested in our prayers. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do plead with you that you would get glory for yourself. Lord, we do love you for all that you have done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about where we were that we were dead sinners who could do nothing to earn anything before you, that you would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sins and to cast us into hell. And if we think about what you did for us, that you did not just forgive us, but you even gave to us the righteousness of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you brought us even into the family so that we could approach you in prayer as sons and daughters, that you have even begun to defeat sin in our lives, that you've given to us an inheritance which cannot be taken from us. Lord, if you have done all this for us, surely it is for us to seek always 
your name, your kingdom, and your will. Lord, may it be, may it be that we would grow in our love for you and that this love would be manifest to the world in that we always seek, as the Lord Jesus Christ did, to do your will and to glorify your name, to hasten the day of the coming of the kingdom. For Lord, we do ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.